This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Now, that's a question I feel like investors, CEOs, politicians, everybody's asking, because we are certainly living in unusual times, not quite sure about where we're going next. It is an era of not only historically low rates, but also of negative rates. And according to the president and founder of Bianco Research, Jim Bianco, those negative rates threaten the financial system. Jim's uh, written a piece in our Bloomberg opinion section, and uh, this story, it is among the most read on the Bloomberg today. Jim joins us on the phone from Chicago. Jim, so glad that you could join us to talk about your column. Uh, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Tell us a little bit about what you set out to look into, because I feel like every day, I mean, we still are like, I cannot believe this rate environment that we're in, yet here we are, and it just seems to kind of become bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, the, the, the origins of it was there was a book written in the 1960s by a guy named Sidney Homer called A History of Interest Rates. And it's about 700 pages long. The latest edition was updated in 2005 by New York University professor Richard Sala. And it looks all the way back to 3000 B.C. And when I went through the book, I could not find one single reference to negative interest rates anywhere in the last 5,000 years of human history. And then as I started to look at how we've structured the financial system, the assumption that's always been made was that interest rates are forever and always positive. I, I like to joke that if you were in the room when they were developing the Black-Scholes option model or the fractional banking system and you raised your hand and said, how does this work if the rates go negative? <laughs> right. They would have laughed at you and said that'll that that doesn't happen. happen. Yeah, that'll never happen. You don't understand how this works. Please excuse yourself. And that's exactly what's happened. And the problem is if we continue down this road, the financial system isn't going to work the way that we think it's going to work. Now, only like, like one last thing. There's a big out, a big enabler of all of this. And I, and I use the word enabler, it might be incorrect, and that's the U.S. We are the reserve currency. We are the largest market in the world, and we still offer positive rates. So Europe can sort of get away with it. Japan can sort of get away with it because their large financial institutions will then – divert their money to the U.S. and say, hey, there's still positive rates over there, pushing downward pressure on our markets as well, too. But if people like Alan Greenspan keep saying, oh, it's no big deal if we go negative, look, when they lose the U.S. as their positive rate outlet, I think the financial system's in a deep world of hurt. And I'm surprised that central bankers have been so sanguine about it. And so, Jim, what does it look like if that pain really starts to set in? Where will we start to see the effects, be it in the pension world, be it as individual uh, stockholders? Where would it manifest? Well, it will manifest everywhere. You know, a couple of things. Banks won't make money. They just will not be able to make money in that environment. And you can see that in the European bank stock index. It's at a 30-year low. The Japanese bank stock index is at a 40-year low um, as well, too. The pension plans, 
If, what the problem is in negative rates is you need more assets than you have liabilities. So if your pension plan has a $10 billion liability to make up a number, you need $10.5 billion in assets in order to meet your liabilities in that world. No pension plan is set up that way. They're all underfunded. My personal favorite is in financial markets. You bring people on and you keep asking them, um, if the stock market is cheap or where do you find value? And the answer is Europe. Because with negative rates, the, the fair value of the European stock market is infinity. Now, of course, it's not infinity, but that's the way the models have been set up. So it's the cheapest market ever recorded in human history. No one believes that. But we have to come up with new models and new ideas. We don't know what fair value is anymore when you go to negative rates. It was never thought of when we put together these ideas of how to measure markets. But we know kind of how it plays out, right, a la Japan. Yeah, it plays out a la Japan and a la Europe with poor growth and a weak financial system. The Europe, Europe is almost, I think Europe's in recession. It's very close to Germany's got negative GDP. Italy's got negative GDP. The strong country in Europe is France at 0.2 on, on GDP. Japan has been negative for a while. Their banks are very weak. They're, as I mentioned before, they're trading at decade-plus lows. Uh, it doesn't work. So, you know, that's the other thing, too, is this is, a, this is a scheme that has failed every time it's been tried. And what I worry is, on the next downturn, we, the U.S., are going to start saying, hey, maybe we ought to start doing that, too. Can I just ask you real quickly, 20 seconds, mm-hmm. what kind of feedback have you gotten from your story? Uh, why did it have to be written? It seems to be so obvious that this is a bad idea that, uh, that I can't believe that people have actually been sitting around taking it seriously. Well, it seems that they have been. Yeah. So we're glad you wrote it. Glad you wrote it for us. Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research, also a contributor, as we've mentioned, to Bloomberg Opinion. He joined us on the phone from Chicago. Check that out. As Carol said, it's one of the most read on the Bloomberg today. All right, so let's get some answers to one of the big questions, which is this trade war, what does it mean? What does it actually mean for how companies and individuals are spending money? We've got a guy who may have the answer. Crawford Delpret is the president of International Data Corp, IDC. It's better known as he's based up in Framingham, Massachusetts. Framingham? Framingham. Framingham. There we go. Framingham. Uh, well, you're <laughs> the host. You're the host of the pops. <laughs> you know all things Boston uh, and Boston area. So, talk to us about how we're actually seeing this play through the tech world. Yeah. So, thanks for having me, guys. It's fascinating to see this kind of play out. We believe when this thing started that there would be some sort of direct impact, and there'd be a, a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. The truth is that last year we saw nine percent IT growth, um, which is which is by historical standards really really high. So why is that? It's because we are moving to an IT-enabled economy. Whether it's uh, the way that you play, the way that you work, or the infrastructure you use in all your cloud services. We just talked about the banks who, um, you know, you see the headlines that they're letting go workers. Crawford, but in fact, when it comes to things like technology, spend, they spend, are hiring. Spend. Yeah, they're spending like crazy. And and we saw what we call these hyperscalers. These are the people like Salesforce.com. These are the people like Facebook, people like Google, people like um, anyone providing a, an internet service. They bought like crazy. So we saw infrastructure spending last year over 20%, which is crazy, crazy high. That's for things like servers and storage and all that kind of infrastructure. So now, fast forward a year, our baseline for 
forecast for total IT spending is about 5% this year, between 4 and 5%. So that's roughly half the rate of the 9 we saw last year. Some of that had some trade war baked into it, but we think it could get a lot worse. Um, but what we are seeing is that companies are starting to pause. They're starting to lock up a little bit. And we actually saw it in some of the comments of some of the companies that report sort of one month off, like HP Enterprise last yeah. week, where they started to say, you know what, our customers kind of don't know what to do. And you can't run your business responding to tweets, right? So you have to kind of think, do I want to spend or do I not want to spend? We're starting to see that in a deceleration overall. And so when you're looking at what where the rubber is is meeting the road. We're talking about PCs, smartphones. Yep. I would imagine, especially, what take us a level down. Like, where is this going to actually happen? Yeah, so it's fascinating. So the hardware uh, is the is the most affected, right? And, and and it just sort of stands to reason. The big boss says, you know what? You can use that PC for another year. Right. Um, you, we, 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 we can stretch that out. These chips are fast enough. Windows is kind of good enough. But in the last year, we saw a PC upgrade cycle, the move to Windows right. 10. We saw a nice PC upgrade cycle. We think we're not going to see that going mm-hmm. forward. We think PC growth is going to be relatively slow. But is that just because we had such an upgrade last year? So it's, it's all just partially because of that, but it's partially because we think that one of the backup plans is to elongate the, the buying cycle. But that's not necessarily baked in. It's more the after of the, of the upgrade cycle. That's what's in our 5% uh, base forecast. But now, just to answer your question, Jason, so when you go forward, um, it's easy to back up on smartphone sales. It's easy to, to pause your smartphone sales, to pause your hardware sales, to push your infrastructure just a little bit harder. One of the nice sort of factors of the as-a-service economy, when you get into things like Salesforce.com or you get into things like buying Workday as a service or buying Oracle's mm-hmm. apps as a service, is that it's a, they are, you know, you kind of check in, but you can't check out, right? You know, you're sort right. of betting your, you're betting your business on these things. So you don't necessarily start canceling those seats, which means those kinds of products are much more muted in terms of how fast they go down. Well, that's what I was thinking. Anything connected with the cloud. I mean, right. how can you back off of that, correct? Well, it's some, are, some things are easier. We are definitely watching in the consumer world where, you know, is there kind of going to be this um, subscription hangover where people start to say, geez, do I really? need three serious satellite subscriptions? You know, do I really need all those right. Netflix subscriptions? But I think by and large, when you look at the enterprise software space, you're running your business on this yeah. stuff. So it's going to be really difficult to back away from that. So what can I yeah. follow for a second? Because what's the takeaway then? I think about investors listening. So what does it mean for companies when we're going to be either watching earnings and so on and so forth and what it means for how they perform in the financial markets and the public markets? Yeah, well, so much of our economy is driven by consumers. So stuff that's consumer-based is the stuff, the hardware products that are consumer-based are the stuff that's most at risk. So pushing that phone another year or your kid's phone another year and a half, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, it, that has the most exposure. And that goes all the way back in the supply chain, right? That goes to the company that makes the memory for the phone, the company that makes the processor for the phone, right. the company that makes the screen, the whole the, supply all chain. that, all that supply chain, and PCs as well. Those kinds of things are, are right. the most vulnerable. Crawford Del Pret is the president of International Data Corp, based up in Framingham, Massachusetts. Here with us in New York City today. Always great to get your insights. Thank you so much. Another 
story that is among our most read on the Bloomberg today about how China may face even more difficult trade negotiations if a deal with the U.S. is not done before the U.S. presidential election come November 2020. That's what President Trump tweeted about today. Let's get into that with Josh Wingrove, White House correspondent at Bloomberg News. He wrote about the president's not-so-veiled threat today. He joins us from the White House. So, Josh, uh, is this just another uh, maneuvering tactic, if you will, strategy uh, in terms of trying to get the Chinese to the table to kind of wrap up some kind of U.S.-China trade deal? Well, I mean, I think it's a tactic and a strategy, but whether it's to get them to the table or to not get them to the table, I I don't know what the what the end goal is here. But, you know, the one thing that has hung over uh, these talks in the last few days was the question of will the next round of negotiations happen this month in Washington as expected. And uh, my colleagues have put out a story over the weekend saying that uh, the Americans and the Chinese basically can't agree on anything uh, uh, right now as they try to sort of sort through whether to have these talks, whether to not have these talks. The president said that the talks are proceeding, but we don't really have anything nailed down. And so today he goes and rattles the cage again and says, listen, you know, if, if, uh, if, if this isn't done by the time uh, the, the election rolls around and, you know, in, the, in President Trump's mind, of course, he's winning the election. And he says, uh, in my second term, it's going to be a lot tougher. And so that's the message that the Chinese will be digesting. And, of course, you know, there's really no end in sight right now. And, uh, the, you know, we're, everyone's watching for an outcome with these two largest economies or whether they can find some way to at least, you know, put a floor under where they are right now. Right. Uh, I want to bring in Ray Shang here. She's program associate at Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S. Joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Ray, great to have you with us. One of the things I wanted to ask Mm -hmm. you about is at this point in a negotiation, it feels like most of the times people are narrowing down to like sort of what the key issues are. It feels like in this negotiation, there are more and more issues that are coming up even beyond the core issues of trade. Why do you think that is? Uh, Well, on China's part, ideological and governmental strengths are really important. Uh, Specifically, at this time of year, China is preparing for the 70th anniversary of the PRC's founding. That's coming up in October. So while trade negotiations are really important to China's long-term economic stability, for Xi and uh, Xi's Communist Party, Um, Recent rhetoric has essentially signaled to other leaders to be prepared for a long-term struggle to tighten belts and other similar ideologically defensive phrasing vis-a-vis China's relationship with the United States. So, Rachel, let me just ask you, um, how important is it, though, to Chinese officials that they do wrap up something relatively soon? Or at some point, is there like, okay, we do have to put all this stuff on the back burner because we have so much other uh, stuff to deal with, whether it's Hong Kong, whether it's um, the commemoration you're talking about, uh, and just kind of jumpstarting and getting the Chinese economy back up to levels that everybody grew accustomed to? Um, well, for China, the the most the there are issues that they're maybe not willing to bend on, um, and in the past we've seen that that, that that's been compromising on certain uh, core economic plans or strategies, and they're also not willing to uh, concede on anything that. Um, risks damaging Xi's political reputation domestically. And so this is something that I think 
over time negotiators have gotten more antsy about because they're uh, growing increasingly concerned that um, negotiation lapses um, do not uh, impact the political messages that she wants to convey necessarily. And so, Josh, come on back in here. You know, what do you hear? You're at the White House. What's the tone? Because one of the sort of pieces of cognitive dissonance here, it seems, is you have a lot of negative headlines, you know, many, uh, you know, source to people familiar with what's going on. And at the same time, you have the president saying it's going great. Things are, you know, like we're moving ahead. Mm -hmm. Nothing to worry about. Let's keep going. Yeah. And I think that tone has really you know, struck me. Uh, we see some of the sort of shakiness in markets about, you know, concern from investors about where this is going. The president is, at least publicly, very comfortable with these tariffs. Remember, he calls himself tariff man. He believes in tariffs. He continues to say that the Chinese are paying billions in tariffs. Of course, importers pay the tariffs. That is, Americans pay the tariffs, but he says that China is, you know, offsetting it by currency devaluation and whatnot. But, you know, at the end of the day, he does not look like a guy who's rushing to get out of this situation. In fact, he looks like he's leaning into this fight, heading in to to really when we're going to start seeing that 2020 cycle ramp up. Okay. So I'm just wondering for investors and CEOs, we just had a conversation about, you know, whether or not all of this is having an impact on IT spending. Um, You know, Josh, if you were a betting man, are we likely to wrap this up before November 2020? What do you mean by wrap up? I think that... Get a deal? Yeah. yeah, Well, I think they can get something like a tentative deal uh, if they want to. But I think it's an open question whether the the president wants to. But tentative deals aren't the same thing as final trade deals and... I think we'll see that with Japan, for instance. You know, Canada and Mexico have a trade deal. That's not been ratified by Congress yet. Right. Uh, the goal, there's always another set of goalposts. And, Ray, save 20 seconds. How would you characterize it? Will something be done before that presidential election? Just quickly. We're not seeing a lot of off-ramps. Efforts to go back to the table from Washington are being met with Chinese responses that are demanding accountability and predictability mechanisms. Those haven't necessarily surfaced. Really, really interesting. Thank you both so much. Ray Shang is program associate for Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S. She joined us on the phone from D.C. Josh Wingrove, also down in D.C., our White House correspondent. He joined us from the White House. And one of the things that they both pointed out was sort of implied is these are two sides dealing on very different timetables because China's like, we got time. Right. We got all the time in the world. The nation that creates those 10-year right plans for the country. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So we get so excited about IPOs. I certainly count myself in that category of, wow, we're going to get a look under the hood. We're going to understand. Are you just discoing out here? Is that David Naughton? I think it's David Naughton. Yeah. Wow. Well done. Wow. That's taken us back. (laughs) All right. So as Carol imagines a disco ball in her mind, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, IPOs. And one of the big questions around WeWork, around Peloton is, what is the path to profitability? Uh, James Gallert is with us. He is president and chief executive officer of Rapid Ratings. He joins us on the phone from New York. And James, one of the things that I really like about your framework here is you actually put some numbers. You have a financial health rating uh, for these two companies. Tell us what's underneath that. 
So, uh, Jason Carroll, good to be with you, and uh, and thank you for uh, for having me on. I, I think the you know, when you look at any of these companies, particularly these earlier stage businesses, you need to be able to look at both the shorter and the longer term perspectives on the business. And the financial health rating that we produce is a one year forward looking perspective on the default probability of a company, and then we also provide a two to three year view called the core health score which assesses how the company's resilience looks over a longer period of time. So you really need to take a look at both of those factors because the longer-term view and the short-term resilience of the company can really be quite different, and people really need to focus on what the short-term problems may be, but also what the longer-term prospects are. All right. I kind of am so excited about this (laughs) because I love this kind of stuff. So let's throw out Peloton, right? This is a company that Jason and I both are very familiar with. We've talked a lot with the CEO, co-founder, or founder, I believe, John Foley. Uh, We both have Pelotons Full disclosure here. So tell us about you do your corporate risk analysis of Peloton and what do you find? So uh, congratulations on both having them. I hope you both use them because that's the, uh, that's the, that's the next trick, right? Yeah. Um, the, um, so with Peloton, we see a financial health rating of 37, which is a 100-point scale for both our financial health ratings and the core health score. So when you're at 40 and below, you're in the high-risk zone, which means you're where – over 90% of companies have failed over the last 20 years. So being a 37 means a lot, there's, there's a lot of risk, but in Peloton's case, there's, there's really no debt. So there's not much to fail on in the short term. So that means you've got to focus on what the longer-term prospects of the company are. The core health score for Peloton is a 17. 17 is not strong. This profile is not dissimilar to a lot of companies, tech companies, that have come to market and IPO'd this year and over the last few years. So really the question is, when they raise the new money, can they use it for the growth and expansion that they intend so they can begin to be on a faster path to profitability and ultimately increase not only the short-term financial health rating, but the underlying core strengths of the company to improve the core health score itself? Well, and one of the things that you point out, James, in your research as well, is that in both of these cases, in both cases of WeWork and Peloton, you have this underlying question, even after you read the entire prospectus of, okay, so what is this company? You know, they sort of frame it in all of Mm -hmm. these different ways. They tag it with all different sorts of descriptors that are meant to make us feel good. uh, And yet, it provides a little bit of a challenge toward really answering the question, but how are you, how exactly are you going to make money? How are you going to sell? What are the actual metrics uh, that you're going to be meeting? Yeah, no, you're right. And, and I think the, when you take Peloton by itself for a moment, <clears throat> Peloton is trying to create a, a product and a product usage in a way that has the market view it as more than equi- more than an athletic equipment right. company, more than a bike company. And in fact, they refer to themselves not as a bike or as an equipment company, but as a quote-unquote tech and media company that changes lives and inspires greatness. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never invested in inspiring greatness and had it do anything in particular. That is not a description for a company. That's a vision for where they want to be, but it doesn't describe what they actually are and how they're going to make money. But you do think about, just to counter a little bit, I mean, this is a company that really has successfully created communities, you know, kind of virtual communities. So you're doing this in the privacy of your home, but you're linked into a class. And I do feel like, 
that's the next wave of fitness. Well, so I agree. I think they've done a really great job of capturing the imagination of a fitness community. The question is, can they expand that? Can they expand that to a degree where they can actually achieve profitability? At the end of the day, whether you're a Peloton or a WeWork or uh, any of the other companies, Uber and others that have come to market this year, the, the question really needs to be, can they ultimately generate returns for their stakeholders. Right. And that's what a company is in business to do. It can inspire greatness, but if it can't generate returns, it won't last. Right. And and there are very few companies historically in the fitness market that have come out and been more than and I don't mean this that negatively, but a fad, meaning a fad yep. is not a scalable business. All right, we're going to leave, we're going to have to leave it there. I'm so sorry, James Geller. We're going to keep talking to you uh, about this down the line because, as you can tell, uh, we are both fascinated by this great work. Uh, we really appreciated the time. James Geller is president and CEO of Rapid Ratings. Joining us on the phone from New York. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Brent Schutte, Back with us, Chief Investment Strategist for Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management. He joins us on the phone from Milwaukee. Brent, great to talk to you. Thanks for having me back. All right. So we've been talking about a whole host of issues, and I feel like, especially over the last couple weeks, we've started to focus more and more, and we were having a conversation earlier in the show about this, negative yields sort of across the board. Some real fears, it feels like, that that could come even to the United States. It's not just going to be Europe and, and Japan anymore. We think about the trade issue. We think about sort of global economic uncertainty. What's top of your worry list at this point? Well, I think all the things that you mentioned are top of the worry list. Um, I guess if I back it up and just take more fundamentally, though, I guess from an overall economic perspective, and I want to really drive this out because you mentioned a lot of things that are out there that are worries, I think most of the things that are out there are somewhat artificial in construct. So the reason why a lot of these things exist right now is because of the global trade war. And I think that's important important Mm. for listeners to remember because if that were to happen to end, I have a feeling a lot of the problems that we have right now would clear up somewhat. And so economically, there doesn't appear to us to be any reason to have a recession unless we make a fiscal error or a monetary policy error. Right now, the central banks, we don't believe tightened too much last year, and they're easing now, so that's off the table. I guess the one that we worry about is that fiscal policy error, and does the president and the administration push too far and tip us over the edge? As of now, we don't feel we've gotten there, but certainly the risk is rising. Okay, so having said that, then do you blame this whole low-rate environment, negative yields, as a result of U.S.-China trade and um, concerns about a global slowdown and central banks around the globe just continuing to cut rates? Is it all because of that? I think it's a huge part of it, and certainly last year, and this is why this year is probably different than last year, last year there were worries about central banks tightening too much. And so I, I do think a large majority of it, and the, the, the threatening to come to the U.S., is really based upon 
the trade war. If you think back a year ago, we were sitting in the U.S., and right now if we were talking, the yield in the 10-year Treasury was close to pushing three and a quarter. And so here we're on the opposite side of that, where we've had this massive drawdown um, in Treasury yields. And, you know, the question that people have is, does that mean a recession's coming or not? And I guess to us, there is a little bit of a bifurcation in the bond market because you're seeing that happen. At the same time, you're not seeing credit spreads widen. And so we're thinking the drawdown in yield is much about people trying to get ahead of more QE in Europe. Um, and actually today in the morning, you actually saw a European member come out kind of against it and actually saw the Treasury tick higher for a little bit of time. And so perhaps this drawdown in long yields is as much about um, trying to get ahead of any potential QE that may occur, maybe not necessarily a recession coming. And so from an investable uh, perspective, what do you do with that, either from a sector perspective, from an allocation perspective? Are there there places you just avoid in this level of uh, almost like optimistic uncertainty, (laughs) I feel like is what is what you're describing, because you're not totally down on on the world economy, but but still cautious. So what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I I guess the biggest thing I'd come back to, and I, I always hear this comment that there's an uncertain time. And typically when people say that, they, they say that they want to concentrate in one or two asset classes. And to me, that doesn't really equal uncertainty. That equals that you're certain about some sort of outcome. And so I would first tell people to stay diversified. I know it sounds corny and it's not as sexy as saying something else, but it really does drive your long-term returns. And you mentioned negative interest rates and all the different things that are happening around the globe. Um, and so, you know, I, I want people to realize that there is a lot of uncertainty. And to me, that means diversification. I guess a couple of interesting little things. Right now, the entire U.S. yield curve yields less than the ten-year tra- than the Fed's two percent target. And so, on the opposite side of that, you have inflation and mostly inflation measures in the U.S. that are more sticky in nature. They aren't moving lower. And so, one way that you could potentially have a different way to, to take care of your bond portfolio would be to add some Treasury inflation protection securities to your bond portfolio. We think places like the emerging markets are still relatively cheap, and if the trade war comes off they potentially will move quite a bit higher. And so I guess it's maybe think a little bit longer term than the next three or four months and think about some of the fundamentals that are out there. They're not all in one direction right now. Brent, I'm curious, as Chief Investment Strategist of Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management, what's the question you seem to get the most, whether it's from some of your wealth wealth clients or whether it's from internally from your team who's got to go out and deal with some of those clients as well? Well, I think the big question still is, is this a, a, is a recession on the horizon? I mean, that's what everybody wants to ask, and that's the question when I travel around the country, people want to know the most. Um, and so far, our answer is still no. Um, we did have the data today that showed that the U.S. manufacturing um, side of the equation has fallen below 50, which people note is contraction. But I would note that that number has to be, at least historically, 42.9 to be um, a recession on that. And right now we're at 49.1. And I guess the bigger reason is because the other side of the U.S. economy, the service side, which is still healthy, uh, and we'll get those numbers later this week, um, is, is such a bigger part of it and still healthy. And so the answer to us still is no. And if there were a recession, we would hazard a guess that given the fact that the consumer is in pretty good shape, it would still be a pretty minor recession. And I guess I want to make one more point, is that the global economy is very much the same way the U.S. economy looks right now. Global services are still pretty high around the globe. It's just the manufacturing side that's weaker. And to us, that points you know, firmly at a trade war being the prime cause of what's happening out there in the world today. 
All right, we're going to leave it there. Brent Schutte, Chief Investment Strategist for Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management. He joined us on the phone from Milwaukee. Always appreciate your insights. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.